most gracious and all-wise God, before whose face the generations rise and fall, thou in whom we live and move and have our being, we thank thee for all of thy good and gracious gifts, for life and for health. We thank thee for food and for raiment. We thank thee for the beauties of nature and the love of human nature. But we come before thee painfully aware of our individual and collective inadequacies and shortcomings. We realize that we stand surrounded with the mountains of love and yet deliberately dwell in the valley of hate. We stand amid the forces of truth and deliberately lie. We are forever offered the high road, and yet we choose to travel the low road. And for these sins, O God, forgive us. Break the spell of that which blinds our minds. Purify our hearts that we may see thee. And O God, in these turbulent days, when fear and doubt are mounting high, give us broad visions. Give us penetrating eyes. Give us the power of endurance. Help us, O God, to work with renewed vigor for a warless world, for a better distribution of wealth, and for a brotherhood that transcends race or color. For these things we pray in the name and the spirit of Jesus. Amen. To turn your Bibles to the Gospel of John, if you would. Again, this is the uh, second Sunday after the Epiphany of our Lord, and this is our liturgical text from the New Testament this weekend. It comes out of the Revised Common Lectionary. I have some friends who have Bibles, and so if you don't have a Bible, I want to lend you one. Just raise your hand and somebody will bring you a Bible. I also have Bibles, or we have Bibles in Spanish if you're practicing Spanish, or Spanish is your heart language, just say to Carrie or somebody else, I want a Spanish Bible, and she will bring you one. But we're going to be reading uh, the Gospel of John starting with verse 1 of chapter 2, and so I want to invite you to stand as we honor the reading of God's Word for us this evening. And I want to invite you to hear the word of the Lord. The next day, some translations say on the third day. On the third day, there was a wedding celebration in the village of Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were also invited to the celebration. The wine supply ran out during the festivities, so Jesus' mother told him, They have no more wine. Dear woman, that is not our problem, Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. But his mother told the servants, do whatever he tells you. Standing nearby were six stone water jars used for the Jewish ceremonial washing. Each could hold 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus told the servants, fill the jars with water. When the jars had been filled, he said, now dip some out and take it to the master of ceremonies. So the servants followed his instructions. When the master of ceremonies tasted the water that was now wine, not knowing where it had come from, though, of course, the servants knew, he called the bridegroom over. A host always serves the best wine first, he said. Then, when everyone has had a lot to drink, he brings out the less expensive wine. But you have kept the best until now. This miraculous sign at Cana in Galilee was the first time Jesus revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. 
This is the Word of God for the people of God, and we say together, thanks be to God. You may be seated. So, uh, this text, along with the whole Gospel of John, are just layers and layers of what I call theological tellings. Another way to say that is they're just epiphanies. Epiphany is an insight. It's a revelation. It's, it's like the truth is on display. Now, the miracle at the wedding in Cana is one of Jesus' most famous miracles. Even college students know it, and they hope for one of these miracles if the keg ever runs dry at their parties. Jesus' miracle of turning water into wine has been a source of controversy, though, throughout history. And frankly, just in the 20th and 21st century, it's been problematic. It's one of those tricky stories for the church, one of those tricky stories during Prohibition. Some who championed the temperance movement inserted assumptions in the biblical text. They would say things like this, well, the percentage of alcohol in the wine in the first century, it, it isn't what it is today. That's silliness. It's also an excuse to be foolish by other people, people who are reckless and people who will do whatever they want. And then say, well, God will come through for me no matter what I do. That's also problematic. Prosperity preachers, though, love this text. They say, if you would just pray, I'm doing my best version of it. If you just pray for more wine, you you name it and you claim it, (laughs) then God will deliver wealth and abundance. All you got to do is just call one 800 Buy me a plane, plant your seed of donation, it will be manifested, and and it'll come to a particular ministry with my name on it or my fundraising program, and wow, you won't believe what you'll see is a problem. Nazarenes also want to temper this story, and the reason they do it is because some suggest that this, this gospel sign just gives a little bit too much permission and can lead to debaucherous behavior. It's, it's problematic for all kinds of reasons. But for these reasons, for us, and then for, for so many more, John writes a message of good news. And we need to read this text and hear it as a text of good news. But I want to tell you this. We also need to be reminded that this is, this is Holy Scripture. And we must acknowledge things in the Holy Scripture that can make us very uncomfortable. Now, it's really easy to see the good news right away, and I I think that's the first theological telling. We have an epiphany immediately. John does not hardly use the word miracle at all throughout his gospel, but instead he uses the word sign, and he he insists that, that this event is a sign that points to God and God's newly established kingdom. If this event, the wedding, and the changing of water into wine is a sign that points to God and 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 God's kingdom, and the kingdom that we should expect, then it's clear what happens in in this kingdom of God type wedding. Jesus, at this kind of an event, pours his grace out with extravagance and abundance, and he goes overboard. Not just a little bit, he goes overboard a lot, and maybe he's even a little bit irresponsible. To imagine this wedding scene is really easy, and it immediately causes us to ask, what does grace look like? 
What does it feel like? What does it sound like? What does it smell like? What does it, what does it taste like? And the picture that we have here causes us to say, well, it's just like the best wedding you've ever attended. It's the picture-perfect day. And if you're Jewish, it's even better than you can imagine because a first-century Jewish wedding was something that, it was an event that everybody came to and everybody in the community looked forward to and, and everybody in the, in, the, in the community gathered to come. And instead of a honeymoon, the bride and the groom, they would spend the whole week partying and dancing. They'd be together for a week and parents in, or in preparation of this wedding, they would save up and, and along with their whole family and the whole community, they'd pour money into making this one great event. So the day is warm and the music is playing and the guests are dancing and too much money has been spent, but who really cares? Because the food is delicious and, and everyone is enjoying, enjoying themselves so much that nobody is looking at his or her watch because it seems like time doesn't matter. And if the kingdom of God is like this, it is something that I can be a part of. Enjoyment, merriment, favor, joy, community, relationships, love, the kingdom of God looks like this fabulous wedding party. When we started the church, we made a vow to throw good parties simply because we thought that this is what the kingdom of God looked like. So I've got a photo for you to see. Here's a photo from one of our parish groups taken at the Epiphany party just a few weeks ago. This is what the kingdom of God looks like according to John. And this is how Jesus' ministry in John begins. This is the place where he inaugurates his new kingdom work. This is the event where John says that God is going to reveal himself, and this is how God is going to deal with the world and everything in it. All of it begins with a great wedding party. And in our scene, it's a great wedding party. It's, it's normal until, uh-oh, here it comes. The worst thing that could ever happen, happens. It's day three, and by now the inhibitions of the people are liberated. They're holding up their glasses on the dance floor, and they're singing Garth Brooks, friends in low places at the top of their lungs. And, and they're just to the point where the whole wedding party in the middle of the dance floor gets to the line where the whiskey flows and the beer chases my blues away. But it's right at that moment when the mother of Jesus catches wind. Oh my gosh, the wine's run out. Now this would have been a major first century faux pas. It's a faux pas galore. And we're to believe that this is an absolute catastrophe, a complete disaster the hosts are going to be humiliated. But Jesus' mom is on the radar. Her antenna are up, and she gets after it. The mother of Jesus, she knows. Get Jesus. He'll know what to do. And you know the rest of it. Jesus has the servants fill six stone jars with water, the kinds of jars used for Jewish ceremonial washings. Each holds 20 to 30 gallons, which is, needless to say, a lot. It is a whole lot. And Jesus says, don't just fill them up. He says, fill them to the brim till they're pouring over. And then he tells the servants to draw some out. 
and take it to the master of the banquet. And when the master drinks it, he realizes that it's the best wine and that they have been holding the good stuff back. And that's when you have an epiphany. This is what grace looks like. It it looks like Jesus giving the best when you've only been expecting the cheap stuff. And in God's economy and in the kingdom of God, Jesus goes overboard. He's irresponsible in his generosity. In God's kingdom, grace comes in extravagant abundance. Caroline Lewis says that that this wedding in John is a perfect image of grace to us. It's a sign that shows us. It doesn't tell us. It shows us what God is like. This wedding and the miracle that Jesus does within it shows us that God is one of abundance. And, and I believe that to be true. God has been better to me than I deserve. That is absolutely for sure. And some of you could say the same thing. God has been better to you than you deserve. And reading this text, this is a good lesson that we should take home. But this is Holy Scripture. And there are problems in Holy Scripture. And I just can't leave it there. There seem to be too many nagging themes in this text. Too many things that just bother me. Because when I match up what happens in this text to real life, frankly, there are some things that I just don't really get. This thing to me, this running out of wine, yes, that is an embarrassing social faux pas. Some caterer should lose her job. They should write a bad review on Yelp. But really, this is, this is a first world problem. In, in my mind, it's, it's like something that you'd see on The Bachelor or something. Lord, help us if they ever run out of alcohol on The Bachelor. If that happens, all hell would break loose. Or it's like a friend's storyline. You know, the one, where Ross gets, the one where Ross gets married, the one of Ross's wedding, or the, the one where Monica and Chandler get married, or the one with Phoebe's wedding. Here they are at a wedding, and something tragic happens. Chandler loses his vest. Joey's late from his acting gig. Monica opens the presents too early because she, is, she can't wait. There's too much snow on the ground for Phoebe's wedding. Ross accidentally says, I take thee, Rachel, instead of Emily. You've watched this, and if you haven't, you can binge it on Netflix. And I want to ask when I, when I read this text, can Jesus be any more shallow in his approach? Jesus seems to satisfy sitcom-like problems in this text. But the issue of no more wine is nothing compared to the real problems that we have in this world. Running out of wine can be embarrassing for the host, that is for sure. But this is Jesus' first act in John. This is it. This is supposed to be the way he introduces God. This is the way he's supposed to epiphany himself as God revealed to the world. And rich people running out of wine? There are definitely greater tragedies in the world. And with this in mind, there is something even more unsettling and disturbing. There is a divine hesitation on Jesus' part. When Jesus' mother recognizes the problem, she starts pulling at Jesus' sleeve and, and his response is anything like I would have imagined that it was going to be. 
This text, the New Living Translation, is pretty gentle, but other texts are, are more harsh. He says, woman, you know it's not the time. Not the time. If there's any good time to satisfy the world's problems, it's actually right now. There's no better time than now. Now, there is no question that God's grace is abundant. I mean, that, that is like the very definition of God, right? Loving and grace-filled. God is the God of fine wine, but the discomfort in the story comes when we consider the real issues in our world and not just the first world problems. There are some who have run out of wine, and it is no joke. It is serious business. And in a world where there are so many who do not have water at all, let alone wine, where is the extravagant love of God then when they need it? Why does there seem to be this divine reluctance? This is my struggle with God in this text. This is, this is it. It seems that from time to time, God does carry Jesus' attitude, which is like, what do you want me to do about it? Which really irritates me. As a pastor, I hear the needs of people all the time. They have no rent money. They have no job. They have no way to cover the school loan. They have no idea what they're going to do about their rebellious child. They have no clue how they are going to get their car fixed. They have no job opportunities. They have no way out. They have no wine. Now, if I, a broken down middle-aged man with an ever-expanding bald spot, can have compassion when it comes to these sorts of issues... Why is it that Jesus is so hesitant? The problems here in this text create problems for the prohibitionists. It creates problems for the fools. And it creates problems for the prosperity preachers. And it causes problems for me and Nazarene. But I do believe that we have had an epiphany and that God is a God of abundance. And in God's economy... There is a capacity for wild generosity. Like the psalmist says, I think the psalmist is telling us the truth. God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. And many have experienced this. And Jesus, by God's Spirit, if He wants to, can provide an abundance. So why the divine hesitation? i got to be truthful with you. I, I don't know. But I, but I do have a hunch and I think John gives us a clue. And I think we might find an answer, or at least part of one, in Jesus' mother. John seems to indicate that when Jesus hesitates, his mom, his mother, becomes the catalyst of Jesus' generosity. You know, Jesus seems harsh. Woman, my time has not yet come. But you know what else? Mary is unwavering. She says, they have run out of wine. And there is more going on than a stern mother. This is a human plea raised from the deepest part of her person. Jesus reacts and his mom to his mom and she persisted. She keeps tugging at the sleeve of and reminding him and insisting to, that he does something about this now. 
And here we have another epiphany. If the wedding of Cana is is God and God's kingdom on display, then it's becoming increasingly clear to us that Jesus isn't trying to be mean or insensitive or unjust, but instead he's showing us, strangely enough, that this is a God, this God is one that seems to need his mother and he needs her heirs. Can you imagine a God with needs? Hold on, here comes an epiphany. In God's economy, the mother of Jesus has this important role to play. It's a participatory role in God's kingdom. She, a human being, not the divine incarnate God, a poor mother that has no name in this gospel, becomes the source of God's abundant and extravagant favor. Now, as I think about this, this... This too is a, means of, is a means of God's grace and generosity. Think about this with me if you would. John is trying to show us that this is a God that doesn't just want us. But this is a God that needs us to participate in his kingdom. The mother of Jesus demonstrates her great trust in this God by prodding and pushing, and talking to, and reminding, and nagging, and in doing so, she becomes an active participant in divine generosity. In this kingdom, this God needs us even, people, to be a catalyst of his overabundant and extravagant grace to the world so that they might not run out of wine. The mother of Jesus comes to him with her emergency, and you know what she does? This is unbelievable. She ends up nudging the will of the Almighty God. And and it just may be that in God's economy, when others are in need, we get to wrestle with this God on behalf of others as well. Think Think about this for a second. What kind of God must he be that he... He can be quarreled with, that he's willing to change his mind, that he will allow us, us, to protest against him in matters of that which is right and that which is good and that which is true. What kind of God must he be to set up his kingdom where there is a shared partnership between creator and creation, between the king and the servants, between the provider and the dependents? What kind of God must he be to set up this kingdom where there is a divine human synergism, a divine human partnership, a shared responsibility that we get to join in with God to take care of this world, to be overly generous, and to meet the needs of others when the wine has run out? Well, I'll tell you what kind of God this must be. He must be the kind of God that is so secure that he actually can be trusted. He must be the kind of God that is so incredibly extravagant that he pours his favor on us so that we might be generous to others alongside him. He must be the kind of God that is interested in both the first world problems and the two-third world problems. He must be the kind of God that takes the likes of us and uses us to meet the needs of others. He must be the kind of God that is so vulnerable and so overly irresponsible with his generosity that for our sakes he went out and got himself killed. This is an epiphany. 
This is what we are seeing in this text. This is grace. Pastor Hope said to me this week, you know, grace always looks like a bad idea from the start. But don't worry, my friends, because John gives us another amazing and insightful clue. He said all this happens on the third day. It wasn't just the third day of the party. The fullness of God and God's love and generosity comes to the world on the third day. It was on the third day that he was raised from the dead. The third day is the day of resurrection. And the book of Revelation says that the day of resurrection looks like a wildly amazing and hopeful wedding feast where time never runs out and neither does the wine. You know... (laughs) I feel like I'm at the Christ experience. You know, (laughs) the mother of Jesus is only mentioned twice in John. But her story is this story where the thread runs through the whole gospel because she's seen first at this wedding feast. And then she is also seen at the foot of the cross. In God's new economy, God is generous in all ways. And as we together sit at the foot of the cross with the mother of Jesus, we are reminded that resurrection means that the worst thing, even the running out of our wine, is never, ever, ever the last thing. This is what we are reminded of. Each week we come to worship. And each week we come to this Lord's table. The cross is the sign. We can see it. It shows us. It is a picture of the overabundant generosity of God, John says. In fact, he says that God so loved the world that he gave his son to the world, not to condemn it, but to save it. And our responsibility is to simply be willing participants who are willing to trust Each week, we are invited to this table of our Lord, and we are reminded as we come to this table that we are invited to trust. The elements that we have here is a constant reminder of something tangible. It's something new. It represents God's new economy. It represents extravagant abundance, and it it expresses uh, the generosity of God. And it is a bold statement to the world that Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. In his generosity, Jesus on the night before he was betrayed by those he came to save. At dinner, he took the bread and he gave thanks and he broke it. And then he said to his friends, this is my body which has been broken for you. A poured out, broken generous act. Whenever you eat it, I want you to remember me. Another way to say, I want you to remember and receive my extreme and abundant generosity. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup of wine that he held, and then he held it up, and he said, this cup is the new covenant that comes in my blood, which is poured out for you. And whenever you drink this, do so in affectionate remembrance of me. Another way to say it, remember and receive my extreme and abundant generosity. This is an open table for all who are open to the transforming work of Christ. And if that is you, you are welcome to this table. And you are welcome in this community. 
Everyone who is open to this good work and wants to receive the grace that comes in the belief, uh, in the belief of Christ is welcome to this table. It is here where we live in this tension that we follow the one who has been the victim of this world and also the one who says, do not worry, my friends, for I have overcome it. We want no barriers, so our bread is gluten-free. Our wine is non-alcoholic so that anyone who wants to receive this grace can come. I invite you to exit the left side of your row, move down one of our aisles, and I invite you to come to meet one of these servers with your hands cupped ready to receive that which is good and that which comes from God. This is an act of grace, a means of grace. We do not take communion here. We receive it. It is a gift. So allow these to serve you. Listen to what they say. Dip the bread into the cup and then eat it. If for any reason you're unable to come down our aisle, I invite you to just wave at Justin and he would be glad to bring the elements to you. Friends, this is a means of grace, and it is a reminder that God in his generosity is abundant, and part of his generosity is inviting you to participate in his good work. So when you are ready, I invite you to trust and then to come.